morning. We're continuing on in the book of Acts. And we'll look at Acts chapter 10, 17 through 43. Kind of a lengthy passage. So if your legs are getting a little wobbly, uh, you can feel free to have a seat if, if you need to. We're continuing on with the story of Cornelius and Peter. Acts 10, beginning at verse 17. This is after Peter saw the vision of the sheet with all the unclean animals come down and God told Peter not to call them unclean. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gates and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you had to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of any nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people 
and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ. How thankful we are for the apostles who were faithful in preaching the Gospel. And thank You that now for some 2,000 years it has continued on so that we are the recipients of this Gospel. And so that we who are gathered together today in Your presence can hear the Gospel once more. Father, may it come clearly to us. May we grow in our understanding of it if we've already embraced it. Father, if we are not clear about what the Gospel is all about, we ask that Your Holy Spirit would give us clarity for our eternal destiny is at stake. There is only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that is the name Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see the significance of that. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, what we considered was not so much the conversion of Cornelius as the conversion of Peter. Uh, the truth is, Cornelius, or excuse me, Peter need to be converted because of his Jewish pride, which resulted in prejudice so that he thought he was better than the Gentiles. Now, what was Peter proud of? Actually, he was proud of many things, no doubt. Uh, he was probably proud of the fact that he was a descendant of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nations, the man in whom God made the Abrahamic covenants and many of the great promises that they were to receive. Peter was probably f- proud of the fact that because he was a Jew, he was those who were the recipients of God's Word. And he was probably proud of the fact that he was an upright and moral, godly man. Uh, He was not an immoral pagan like those Gentiles out there that the Jews commonly referred to as the dogs. So Peter was proud of many things and God had to deal with him because of his pride, because of his prejudice. But you think, if you think about it, this is really a sad irony, isn't it? Instead of being proud, Peter should have been humble. He should have stood in awe that he, of all people on the face of the earth, had the privilege of being a Jew, of being heirs of the covenants made with Abraham, of receiving God's Word, of knowing how to live life, of having God's instructions. But at last, isn't that what happens with many of us? God blesses us. And instead of being humbled by that, we become arrogant. It goes to our head. So we are the recipients of Reformed theology and God opens our eyes and helps us to understand His Word. And if we're not careful, we can get big heads. We can be proud because we understand theology like other people don't. Or maybe God gives us understanding with how we are to disciple and educate our children. And and we're so proud of how we're rearing our children because we're not doing it like they're doing it over there. And if we're not careful, instead of being 
humble that God would show us these truths that could have an impact on our families. We could get big heads and we can be proud of all the knowledge and understanding that we have. Or God can bless us financially. And once again, instead of being humble that God would bless us financially, we can think that, boy, I'm really something and think that it's because of us and our skills and our ability and our hard work and our knowledge that we have our financial house in order unlike other people who don't have their act together. And you know that I could go on and on and on with different ways in which God has blessed us and instead of being humbled, we become arrogant. So we need to be very careful how we respond to God's blessings. We should be humbled whenever God blesses us because we don't deserve it. God shows no partiality. That was a lesson that was hard for Peter and one that didn't come easy. I want to clarify something in verse 28 that could be misleading. Acts 10.28 Peter says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's really not the best translation, that word unlawful. Uh, the New Testament scholar F. F. Bruce says it really should be translated taboo. That might be a good translation. Uh, Stott, quoting another commentator, said the Greek word denotes what is contrary to ancient custom or prescription. So it wasn't that the Old Testament law told the Israelites, hey, you can't talk to Gentiles. You can't go in their homes. You can't share the gospel with them. You can't have a meal with them. The Old Testament did not forbid that. Yes, there was to be a certain amount of separation. God did come out from among them and be ye separate. But He was talking about separate living. Don't embrace their lifestyle. Don't embrace their false gods. Don't embrace all the values that they have because they're pagans. But he didn't say you couldn't have anything to do with those of other nations. In fact, the Israelites were supposed to evangelize the other nations, but they failed terribly at that job. So I want to make it very clear. It wasn't the Old Testament law that said you can't have anything to do with Gentiles whatsoever. Rather, it was the customs that developed from the Israelites. And of course, those customs grew and expanded and resulted in terrible prejudice. Now, this morning, I want to look at the other half of this passage, and I want us to consider this morning uh, the conversion of Cornelius. The conversion of Cornelius. How did this Gentile become a Christian? And this is, this is a narrative, so I don't want to be too rigid and say, this is how God brings someone to faith every single time. Just like when we looked at earlier in chapter 9, we saw the conversion of Saul. And I didn't want to say, this is how God converts people every single time. He knocks you off your high horse and He immediately shows you who Jesus Christ is. This is a narrative. And every single salvation experience is different and it is unique. Uh, but some of you, perhaps, may relate to Cornelius. Uh, maybe you say, I couldn't re uh, relate to the Apostle Paul. We now know him, uh, but I can relate to Cornelius. So I want us to consider the conversion of Cornelius this morning and we'll look at his conversion uh, with three steps. Different ways of looking at these, but let's consider three steps. 
First of all, Cornelius responds positively to the revelation that he has. He responds positively to the revelation that he has. Uh, Put differently, um, he has a limited understanding of who God is and how He works in the world, but he is responding to that understanding, that light that he has. Um, now, as we talk about revelation, theologians also talk, uh, often talk about two types of revelation. By the way, I, sh- I should ask the kids, you, you know what that big word means? Revelation? Just as your dad looking at you. You know what that means? Anybody 10 or under want to give me a definition of revelation? I know that's a bigger, big word. Let me give you a smaller word. Revealing. How about Revealing. I give you kids an illustration to help you understand with this. Uh, perhaps there is an artist, and I know we have artists and we have painters in this congregation, and maybe they put together some painting, and they want to have an unveiling, so they might put a, put a tarp over it or some kind of sheet. And then when everybody was all gathered together, um, there would be a revelation. They would take away that sheet, and you could see the painting. So a revelation is God unveiling or revealing who He is, revealing how He works in the world, and most significantly, revealing how it is that we can be saved. So there's general revelation and there's special revelation. General revelation, as the term indicates, is broad, it's general, and we find general revelation in nature. Any of you like nature? You like nature whether you realize it or not, because it reveals God. When you go to the Grand Canyon, you're seeing the handiwork of God. When you go to a mountain range, when you go to an ocean, Niagara Falls, um, you are seeing the handiwork of God. And if you listen very carefully, you will hear a sermon. You will. Any of you heard a sermon at the Grand Canyon? Let me read from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Did you know that the universe has a voice? It does. And if you listen very carefully, the voice coming from nature will be declaring, God is great. God is glorious. God is all-powerful. Bow down and worship God. But many people don't want to listen to that sermon. Because if they were listening to that sermon, people would be bowing down. Any of you been to the Grand Canyon? Many of you have been to the Grand Canyon. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you got to go to the Grand Canyon again? Wouldn't it be wonderful to see a group of 20 or 30 people bowing down and worshiping at the Grand Canyon? Not worshiping the Grand Canyon, okay? But worshiping at the Grand Canyon because they recognize, wow, look at how awesome this is. This is an indication of who God is. And it does reveal God, which is why everybody in the world knows that there's a God. 
This is what Paul says in Romans 1. You can turn ahead if you like. It's right after the book of Acts. Acts 1.19, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Talking about everybody in the world. It's plain to them. It's obvious. It's clear. Even the little children can understand it. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This is why I've said many times there's really no such thing as an atheist. There are suppressors of the truth, but everybody knows deep down in their heart that there is a God. They know it because they got up in the morning and they saw the beautiful sunrise, which said there is a God. But in their hearts they said, shut up, I don't want to listen to that message. Because I might have to live differently. Everybody knows that there's a God. They know that there's a powerful God. Therefore, as Paul goes on and says, so they are without excuse. They are without excuse. They will have no excuse to offer on the day of judgment. They knew that there was a God. Nevertheless, they rejected God. As Paul goes on, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Everybody in the world knows enough about God to honor God and to thank God for what they have. But they don't want to honor God. They don't want to thank God. So they're without excuse. So creation, we could say, is sufficient to condemn people, but it is not sufficient to save people, which is why we need special Revelation, which is why we need the Scriptures that spell out the Gospel. We need both books. Charles Spurgeon said, God has two great books, nature and Scripture, and we should read both of them. And even if you only have two books in your library, like perhaps King David only had two books, um, these two books together are sufficient to bring about our salvation and to show us how to live our lives. Now, Cornelius most likely was a convert to Judaism, uh, so he had the Old Testament Scriptures. And at this point in time, he is responding to the revelation that he has. He is praying to God as he knows Him at the time. Uh, he is giving alms. He's taking care of the poor. He knows that that is something that God wants him to do. So he is responding appropriately, uh, but not yet has he been saved. He needs more revelation. Now, when I first came to this church, um, it seemed like this question was coming up again and again and again. And I'm not sure why, but it was. I haven't heard it for a while. But the question was this. Um, are you saying um, that people out in the jungles or in nations who have never heard about Jesus Christ, never even heard His name, don't even know that there is a Jesus, who have never heard the name Jesus Christ, are you saying that they're going to hell, state it bluntly, because they're not believing in Jesus that they never heard of? And I say, as a response, they will be judged for failing to respond to the revelation that God did 
revealed to them. So even if they have never heard of Jesus Christ, they do know that there's a God. Because they look up in the sky at night and they see the stars. They see the sun. They see the moon. They see the grass. They see the trees. They know that there's a God. And they don't thank that God. They don't glorify that God. Therefore, on the day of judgment, they will be judged. We can at least say this for sure. They will be judged for the revelation that God gave them and they rejected because they didn't want to respond to God. Now, you might be wondering, but, but, on the other hand, what if they do respond positively to that revelation? What if they are like a Cornelius? A person who responds positively to that revelation. What will God do? And that brings me to my second point. They will be acceptable to God. Let me say that again. They will be acceptable to God. And let me also say that we have to be very careful how we define acceptable. But notice before we define it, um, how acceptable Cornelius is. Look at verse 4. We were already told in verse 2 that he was a devout man, that he feared God with all his household, that he gave alms generously, prayed continually to God. Verse 4, the angel comes and he stared at him in terror. And the angel says, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And last week we said this is like when the Jews would go into the temple. They would offer their sacrifices. The smoke would go up from the sacrifice. It would intermingle with the incense that indicated our prayers and it would rise before God and it would be pleasing in God's nostrils. The angel is saying, your prayers, your almsgiving is pleasing in the nostrils of God. That's pretty powerful. Cornelius is pleasing um, to God in what he's doing. And then look at verse 31. The angel, repeating once again what, what the angel said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. That's encouraging. And your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore, that's significant, send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. Now we'll come back to that in a little while. Now drop down to 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. He's talking about Cornelius, of course, and his household. But in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Again, in the context, he's talking specifically about Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius has been accepted by God. Many people have read this passage and concluded, therefore, Cornelius is saved. And all Peter is really doing is showing him how he is saved because of the death of Christ. But he's already saved. He just doesn't know why he is saved. And many people will use this to show how people out in the jungles can be saved without missionaries going, explaining to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps some of you know that there's an increasing view among evangelicals that many people, if they're sincere, are going to heaven. 
So we have to be very clear and we have to address these objections so we can have it very clear in our mind. Acceptable in this context does not equal saved. And let's show how at this point, while on the one hand, Cornelius pleases God, his prayers are being answered, his gifts are rising to God, just, just like the sacrifice offered to Jews, so that we can say that he's acceptable to God, that he's pleasing to God before he becomes a Christian. He is not saved at this point. And how do we know that? A number of passages. Acts 10.43. This is at the end of the Gospel. That we'll come back to a little later. To him, talking about Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Cornelius needs to be forgiven. But that forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ. Now, we could also think about the whole book of Acts. We could go back to Acts 2. And in Acts 2, verse 5, we're told that now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. So even back in chapter 2, we're told that there were devout men gathered. Not total 100% renegade pagans, but devout men, moral men, religious men. And this is very important because one of the lessons we learn from Acts chapter 2 and in our present passage is that morality... Religiosity, uh, devoutness is not sufficient for salvation. And we've seen again and again thus far in Acts that the Gospel is going to the most religious, the most upright people on the face of the earth, the Jews. And at the end of each and every sermon, something like this is said to them, now you need to repent. Repent. And if you repent, you will be forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. So we need to be very clear that nobody is saved by morality, by having a fervent prayer life, by giving alms to the poor, or offering sacrifices. That is not sufficient. And we've seen that all through the book of Acts. And we see it again with Cornelius. Acts 11.14 that we'll get to a little later. I'll begin at 13. Acts 11.13 And He told us how He had seen the angel stand in His house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. Now, let me just stop right there for a moment. Um, earlier, the angel... Uh, said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered. Therefore, send to Joppa for Peter. And that's, that logical connection is important. Your prayer has been heard. Therefore, send to Joppa for Peter. Now, what was the prayer? Um, we don't know. John Piper speculates that maybe it went something like this. Uh, Lord, I'm trying to please You in all that I do, but I know that my works are insufficient to take away my sin. I know that I'm guilty 
before you. What do I need to do to be saved so that I know that I am right with you? Something along those lines. And I think it is fascinating in the passage that it says, in response to his prayer, he is told, therefore, because of that, send to Joppa for Peter. And notice what Acts 11.14 says. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So he's pleasing to God. God is answering his prayers. And part of the answer to his prayer is Peter. Isn't it wonderful when we get to be the answer to someone else's prayer? Peter is the answer to Cornelius's prayer. So God is answering his prayer. Um, so, uh, Cornelius is not saved yet. Otherwise, he wouldn't need the message of salvation. Peter's coming so that he can show him how to be saved. Because he is not yet saved. And verse 18 reiterates this as well. Acts 11:18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance came after the message and it led to life because Cornelius had not yet had eternal life. Um, so Cornelius is not yet saved, but he is in the process of being saved. Uh, a number, number of weeks ago I told this story, but let me tell it again so I repeat myself. Um, but it really is a great story and I've heard many stories like this. Um, I mentioned that there were some missionaries in the Middle East in a place that was hostile uh, to Christian missionaries, a Muslim nation. And a husband and wife uh, went to a gas station and they saw a man standing outside the gas station and he was holding an automatic weapon. And they saw that man, so they just uh, quietly, minding their own business, went to the gas station, paid for the gas, and then went on their way. And as they went on their way, the wife said to her husband, I think we need to go back and give that man standing outside the gas station a, a Bible. And the husband said, Honey, did, did you see what he was holding in his hands? <laughs> and she said, I really feel burdened by God that, that we need to give that man a Bible. I think that's what the Spirit is leading us to do. We need to go back. And the husband said, I don't think that would be too prudent. We need to be very careful about how we witness in this country. And the wife said, I really think we need to. And the husband said, Sorry, honey, I'm going to have to overrule you. Well, the wife really sensed that that was what God was calling them to do. So she starts praying. Dear Lord, please forgive the cowardice of my husband. May the blood of that man at the gas station not be on my hands. Now, wait, wait, wait. You, you really feel that strongly? She said, I really do. I can't explain it. So reluctantly, the husband turns the car around. They go to the gas station. They hand the gentleman a Bible. And he says, thank you very much. And I forget the exact details. God appeared to me in a dream or somewhere along those lines that I was to stand here in front of this store. And in a few days, someone would hand me the words of eternal life. And God is working with people all over the world. And if you've heard stories of missionaries, you know that in countries who have never heard the Gospel, never heard the name of Jesus Christ, God has people ready for them. It's like they, they are right for the picking. The Holy Spirit can work anywhere. 
Uh, God is free to work in any way He chooses. And He gets people ready. And we need to be open to that. And I want to say to Christians, first of all, look for people who are open. Remember we saw the Ethiopian eunuch a little while earlier reading from Isaiah 53. He, he was bruised for our sins. God punished him for our iniquities. Who is the prophet talking about? So glad you asked. There are people like that. One pastor told the story of how he was on an airplane and he just wanted to get some sleep. And The gentleman was reading from John 3 about you must be born again. And he said, excuse me, do you know anything about the Bible? Do you know what it means to be born again? God's got people like that on airplanes. He's got people like that in the jungles. He's got people like that in the grocery stores. He's got people like that wherever you go. Be open. Be open. You never know what God is doing. And they're just waiting for an explanation. And you're the answer to their prayers. Lord, help me understand what, what this is all about. And I want to encourage those of you who aren't sure if you're Christians or not, or uh, maybe you're putting yourself in the seeker category, respond to the revelation that you have. Respond to the revelation that you have. Pray to God. Pray to God. Ask for greater insight. God really does answer prayer. Seek Him out. You never know what God may do. Now, at this point, I know what some of you Calvinists are thinking. You're thinking of John 6.44. No one can come to Me, the words of Jesus. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. There's no one who seeks God. No, not one. And Pastor Wayne, you just told him to seek God. Yes, I did. Uh, let's not be hyper Calvinists. Sometimes I feel we're so worried about the sovereignty of God that we forget, well, there is also the responsibility of man. And the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God are not enemies. They come together beautifully, even if we don't understand how they come together. It was the Apostle Paul who said, there is none who seeks God, no, not one. And it was the same Apostle Paul in an evangelistic message to the men at Athens who said that they should seek God. Is he contradicting himself? No. Seek God. Nothing wrong with telling unbelievers, seek after God. Grope for God. He's right there. Reach out. He is there. Think about this. Don't we also call unbelievers to repent? Don't we also call them to put their faith in Christ? And yet we know that that's all a work of God. Nevertheless, we still tell them to do that. And I have no hesitation in telling anybody, seek after God. Pray to God as you know Him. Hoping and praying that God in His sovereignty will intervene. But let's not overreact, okay? This brings us to the third point. God brings Cornelius and his household the Gospel. And again, probably indirect answer to Cornelius' prayer. And then we have Peter uh, proclaiming the message that they are all there 
ready to hear in the presence of God. And what an audience. Any preacher would love an audience like that. We're gathered together. I've got my family members. I've got my all friends. We're here in the presence of God waiting for what you have to say. I would love an invitation like that. <laughs> Maybe just once before I die, I'll be invited into someone's house and I'll hear something like that. So we've sent for you. Give us the message. <laughs> Peter gives them the message and this is where he begins in verse 36. For the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The message is peace through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not Jesus' first name and last name. Jesus is His name. Christ is one of His titles. It means Messiah. It means the Anointed One. The One that all the prophets in the Old Testament were saying uh, would come and deliver Israel from their sins. He has come. And notice very carefully, He is Lord of all. Uh, my translation has it in parentheses as though it's just kind of a passing parenthetical statement. Uh, but I think it needs to stand out in big, bold letters. He is Lord of all. You need to know that. This Jesus, the Messiah, the One that brings peace to Israel, He is Lord of all. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. And I'll say it again. One of the missing uh, doctrines in the evangelical Reformed world is the ascension and enthronement of King Jesus. That is so crucial. So often in our Gospel presentation, we talk about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And we should. That's absolutely essential. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered this to you as a first important. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. On the third day, He rose again from the dead according to the Scriptures. But let me remind you of what we saw in Acts 2. When Peter gives his first evangelistic sermon, he doesn't stop with the resurrection of Christ. He continues on to talk about the ascension of Christ at the right hand of God and the enthronement of Christ. So the climax of his gospel presentation is this. This is Acts 2, 34 and following. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Quoting Psalm 110.1. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts and asked, what shall we do? But notice where Peter is going. He's talking about the life of Christ, the miracles, the death, the resurrection. But he's building up to the ascension and the reign of Jesus Christ at the right hand. And he reminds them, He is the Messiah and He is the Lord. Therefore, by implication, you need to bow before Him and confess that He is Lord. And could it be that people are not confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because we are not preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord? Perhaps we have a truncated Gospel and we're leaving out the fact that He is the risen and reigning Lord. So that's very important. So when Peter talks about the fact that He is Lord of all, that is significant right up front. He's letting them know who this Jesus is.
Jesus is. And then he continues on uh, to talk about what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with the baptism John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit and with power, how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And I would mentioned in the past that in the Old Testament, you never had deliverance from a demon. The first time that happens is when Jesus arrives on the scene and it's an indication that the kingdom of God has come. And it has come in the person of the king of the kingdom. So now, for the first time, people are being delivered from the devil. And then Peter says, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. So Peter... Uh, does what Charles Spurgeon suggested we should do with any text, and that is make a beeline for the cross. Um, he's talking about Christ. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. And of course, he's going to zoom in on the cross. But, did he use the word cross? Were you paying attention carefully? What word did he use? Tree. Why tree? Why not cross? He could have said cross. Tree. That is a reference to Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, which says, Cursed by God is anyone who is hung on a tree. So by referring to the tree, it's a reminder that Jesus Christ was cursed for our sin. He took upon Himself our curse so that we could be blessed by God. But God raised Him on the third day and made Him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Isn't that significant? When was the last time you heard an evangelistic message focus on the fact that Jesus Christ is the judge? And notice, of the living and the dead. Which is a reminder He is Lord of all. Which means He is King of all. Which means He is Judge of all. This is a little harder for us. But if we were in a culture that had a monarchy, we would understand that the King is the ultimate sovereign. The king, for all intents and purposes, is the Lord of everybody in this nation. And the king is also the ultimate judge. So in terms of a monarchy, which I know is hard for us Americans because we just love democracy, but we need to know that even though we are Americans and our government is a democracy, the ultimate government of the universe is a monarchy. And Jesus Christ is the King of all, including America. Which means He is the Lord of all and He is the Judge of all. And as we're told in Hebrews 9.29, it has been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Once to die and then the judgment where everybody will stand before God and give an account for how they have lived their lives. And the question we all need to ask ourselves is, are we ready? That day is coming when we will stand before a holy, perfect, 
God, the judge of all men. Are we ready? Cornelius knew he wasn't ready. And then Peter says, to him, all the prophets bear witness. So a reminder, everything that you've read about Cornelius in the Old Testament, they all point to Jesus Christ. All the prophets, they're all talking about Jesus Christ. They all point to Him. They bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. It's that easy. If you believe in Him, you will receive the forgiveness of sins. Cornelius, you and all your family. And then Peter says, through His name. Notice how he reiterates the fact that it's belief in Jesus' name. In His name. Emphasizing Jesus alone. There's no other alternative. There's no other Savior out there that they can put their faith in for salvation. It's in Jesus Christ alone. He's the Lord of all. That's our only hope. And of course, we'll look at it next, or in a couple weeks, Cornelius responds positively to the message and he is saved. question is, Jesus, our Lord. I was talking about this a couple of weeks to a gentleman. I'm, I'm not quite sure where he is spiritually, but we were talking about this whole issue of quote-unquote lordship salvation. Uh, but I was saying, I believe that Jesus is Lord of all. You can't separate the fact that He's Lord from the fact that He's Savior. He's, he's Lord and Savior at the same time. That's, that's who He is. He's Lord of all. And I, I asked him, have you made Him Lord? And he said, well, if He's Lord of all, then I don't make Him Lord. He's just Lord. And I said, you're right. You're absolutely right. Let me rephrase the question. <laughs> is He your Lord, therefore, reluctantly or joyfully? Have you submitted to His Lordship? And his response was, well, I have a little difficulty with submission. I said, oh, that's too bad. I said, I love submission. I just love submitting to Jesus Christ. And I don't do it perfectly, but I wanted to let him know it is a joy to bow before this, this king. This is a great king. I don't know exactly where he is. Um, I couldn't quite tell. Uh, but I want to ask you, is He your Lord reluctantly or joyfully? Have you bowed the knee and confessed that He is Lord? The simplest expression of faith is Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the simplest expression. Recognizing that He's the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He is reigning on high over the nations and that salvation is found in Him alone. And faith in Jesus Christ includes bowing before His Lordship. I hope you have. If you haven't, I hope you will. It's our only hope of forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we bow now before Your presence. We bow before Jesus Christ. We thank You for His perfect life. We thank You for the good deeds that He performed. We thank You for the deliverance of demons that took place while He walked on the face of this earth. And Father, we thank You that He is still working on earth 
through His people. We thank You for His death on our behalf, taking upon Himself our sins, taking upon Himself Your curse. And Father, we know that You accepted His sacrifice on our behalf because You raised Him from the dead on the third day. And He appeared to many. And then, 40 days hence, He ascended into heaven. And right now, He's at the right hand. Your right hand, ruling and reigning over the nations. And it's a joy for us to acknowledge His Lordship. And Father, be with us as we talk to people throughout the day, throughout our week. Father, give us opportunities to tell people about the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for our cowardice. Help us to be bold in proclaiming this message. And Father, I pray that You help everybody in this room to see that Jesus Christ is their only hope of salvation. I pray that they will turn to You, that they will seek You and Jesus Christ with all their hearts. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.